So welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where we argue that it's a good thing that video games cause violence. I'm your host, Yasin Masood, and today I'm joined by CRC32, G Greer, and 93. Hi, this is uh, CRC32. I'm uh, an attorney by training and uh, ended up in business, uh, generally libertarian, um, but not uh, not so extreme. Uh, my name is Jeff Greer. I'm a software engineer at a large software company in San Francisco. In the past, I've worked at startups in the Bay Area and started one myself, went through Y Combinator, raised VC money, and then failed. Oh, and I, sorry, I lean, uh, I guess, libertarian. Yeah. I'm 93. I'm a mid-20s programmer who lives in Canada. Uh, I also lean libertarian. I'm Yassine Masood. I'm a civil liberties attorney slash criminal defense attorney in my mid-30s. I'm generally sympathetic to libertarian thought. I largely consider myself an anarchist. And uh, I tend to be chameleon in a lot of uh, left-wing circles. So the topics today are going to be semi-related. We're going to discuss breathalyzers in general, as well as uh, this new startup company that would like to develop a THC breathalyzer. We're also going to get into the anarcho-capitalist version of police and prisons and discuss uh, alternatives to the current incarceration system, such as restorative justice and whatever else we can think of. So any preference for which ones you want to start with? Who wants to summarize what uh, what the deal is with the breathalyzer company? So this was posted on uh, Y Combinator, which is a startup. It was posted on Hacker News, which is owned by Y Combinator. People oh. get upset about you for that. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, this was posted in Y Combinator. <laughs> um, uh, this uh, Canadian startup called Santec Labs wants to launch uh, funding for a new uh, uh, breathalyzer that would detect the THC. So to give uh, some background, THC is it's a psychoactive chemical in uh, marijuana and cannabis. It is presumed to be the chemical that causes impairment. This is important as more and more states legalize marijuana. Uh, they still have to deal with impaired driving. And every state has approached this in a different manner. Some states have just uh, included a per se violation, meaning that when they draw your blood, if your THC levels are above an arbitrary limit, then then you are considered impaired. They don't, they don't necessarily check whether you yourself are impaired. They just make uh, an assumption, a per se assumption. So this uh, breathalyzer is trying to fill... A need because right now, if you get arrested for suspected DUI, all the police have to determine whether you are indeed impaired is the driving that they observe and then a variety of what are considered field sobriety tests. Uh, most of these are some variants of walking in a straight line, counting uh, backwards to, to 30, and then making sure that tracks with the, the number of seconds that has passed and things along that line. Nothing really perfect, nothing really. Not, not much of a slam dunk, but presumed to be enough for uh, to build up a probable cause and to arrest people. This roadside uh, breathalyzer is meant to fill, fulfill a gap in this, uh, in this investigation to presumably get something more uh, accurate. And that's what the startup is uh, developing. Do people ever practice field sobriety tests while they're sober to just be good at them drunk? So I have a, I have a story about that. <laughs> and and uh, so do I. <laughs> uh, CRC, go ahead. Uh, okay. Well, uh, since you said, do people practice field sobriety tests while sober? Um, my story is a slight difference. In college, we practiced sobriety tests while 
completely plastered because and 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 the theory was I, I and I honestly don't know how well this bore out but the theory was uh you walk the line or whatever while drunk when you're if you are drunk again you'll have practiced it in that state so you're more likely to actually get it right how well did that work i never had an op- opportunity to test it out in a real life situation however i was quite good at walking the line while drunk <laughs> Uh, was that was that independently verified or was that your own uh, assessment? Well, everyone in the room agreed, but they were also all drunk, too. <laughs> so one thing, the other aspect of um, uh, field sobriety tests that is extremely difficult to fake is the something called the horizontal nystagmus gaze test. My understanding is the way this works is that uh, because alcohol is a relaxant, a muscle relaxant, one of the first muscles to let go are the muscles that constrain your eyes. Because normally your eyes kind of dart everywhere. I'm sure someone can give a better explanation. But the muscles around your eye, uh, your eyes constrict and help control where you look. And so when you drink alcohol, it becomes very difficult to maintain control over uh, over your eyes, especially when you're looking at something at the very edge of your vision. So the way this is uh, performed is they have you follow a stimulus, typically a pen. Without moving your head, you're supposed to look left and right at the very, very edge of your peripheral vision. And right around that time, if you are indeed impaired, your your eyes just start kind of uh, darting everywhere and shaking because you can't keep them uh, keep them straight. So good luck trying to practice doing that, CRC. Oh yeah, we never practiced that one. For those that don't know, uh, I deal with DUIs on a daily basis. I'm a cr- criminal defense attorney, and I'd say maybe forty to fifty percent of my cases are are DUIs. Which are which is quite boring because they're largely the same thing, and you just have to look through the police report and the discovery to see if the cops made it made a mistake. Otherwise, invariably your client is indeed drunk, and invariably they were indeed driving, and there's not much of a defense that you can mount over such an ironclad case. When it comes to the field sobriety tests and the breathalyzers that do happen on the roadside, the way it typically gets investigated is the police officer observes some sort of lane weaving or bad driving or no turn signal or something that is indicative of impaired driving. Then they follow the car for a while. Uh, and then when they do pull them over, they usually smell alcohol. They see bloodshot eyes. They hear slurred speech. And the, they, that gives them a pretty good indication of whether someone is impaired or not, or at least pretty good suspicion of whether someone is impaired or not. At that point, that's when they ask if they want to do some voluntary tests and this is uh, composed of the horizontal gaze and nystagmus test. And this is where that test, the one that tests whether you can maintain control over your eyes, even at the periphery of your vision. They also do a uh, walk and turn and one-legged stand. Even, even judges and prosecutors don't really give much credence to these uh, tests because they're so... There, there's so many uh, opportunities for someone to mess them up, even if they're completely sober and perfectly athletic. Because um, there was one instance where a police officer during trial was asked to demonstrate what a walk and turn test consisted of. And in the process of doing so, he tripped in the courtroom. So that was a really good indication for the defendant in that case, not something that you can necessarily bank on, but it does show you how difficult they are and how... And how um, kind of unreliable uh they are seen to be sorry that's the status quo for uh like thc nowadays including uh, since there is no breathalyzer right well so i've just described the alcohol when it comes to marijuana impairment it's a little different the the usual the usual giveaway 
is uh, smell. And that's, that's usually enough to generate probable cause to effectuate an, an arrest. But if they don't have that, they try to investigate whether someone is experiencing time dilation. So they ask them to close their eyes, count backwards from 30, and see if they are on track with uh, 30 seconds, if they can stick, stay on track with that. And it's it gets kind of annoying because like a normal person can't really do this with a significant amount of accuracy. Uh, so I had a client that, that counted the 30 in 33 seconds, which I think is really good because he's not a watch. Uh, and that was seen as uh, a sign of impairment because it's outside of the ideal. If you count down faster than 30 seconds, is that better or just closer is better? The way the police officers tend to write these reports is they write down pretty much any deviation from from ideal. I hate the word, I mean, I think the word Kafkaesque is overused, but the way this is done is that any deviation, whether good or bad, indicates some sort of impairment. So if you go too fast, then you're not necessarily following directions and maybe not following directions is a sign of impairment. I see. Even if it was just you're nervous or you're just a fast person in general or something like that. Exactly. And they write down the environment that these tests are conducted in. And you can imagine where they typically happen. It's on the side of a highway, not exactly the most ergonomic of surfaces to conduct these acrobatic tests. So I understand why they penalize you for going too fast because if they didn't then even someone who's experiencing time dilation would have a fairly easy time just trying to count as quickly as possible and then they would undershoot 30. Yeah, I think that's a fair point 93. Uh, however, it still highlights the point that you have to be perfect on this otherwise you are considered uh, p potentially impaired. Yeah, it's not a great standard. This is what uh, these uh, these tests are certified by the National Highway Transportation Administration. That's the organization that that's the body that tests how accurate these tests are and uh, promulgates it and advertises it to all law enforcement across the United States. They're still kind of working it out on what to do with the marijuana. Generally, none of this matters because ultimately the goal is to just have enough of a suspicion to effectuate an arrest. Once you have an arrest, you can either force the person arrested to blow into a breathalyzer that is much, much more accurate than a roadside breathalyzer to determine if they are impaired from alcohol, or you call up a judge in the middle of the night to get an arrest warrant in order to take them to a hospital and have a phlebotomist to withdraw blood from, from them and test it later. Generally, the prologue to all of this is more or less ignored. The goal is really just to get something much more accurate. And that's what that's what this uh, company is trying to fulfill. As soon as they launched this, this idea that they're working on, I don't think they have a commercial product yet, the comments were, how could you do such a thing? Which was pretty interesting from my point of view. I, I thought people would, would welcome this technology and not, not be upset about it. Okay. Why would you think people would welcome this, this technology? I thought that right now people got pulled over for being impaired and it was up to the cop basically to make a subjective decision of whether or not this person was impaired based on the tests that you explained earlier and having some sort of gold standard unbiased source of how intoxicated you are would help people who are not intoxicated uh, not get arrested or or charged with crimes that's the that's the ideal isn't it uh, as soon as you, uh, as you were saying that, a bunch of red flags came up because I'll talk about how uh, roadside breathalyzers work. They typically work on a fuel cell technology in that you blow into it, it the amount of alcohol that is in your breath gets burnt up 
and the voltage increase from all the burning alcohol is measured and that is calculated to give you an approximation of what the blood alcohol content is. It's obviously not a perfect measurement. It's a a very crude approximation. And as a result, roadside breathalyzers, the portable ones that you can get on Amazon, are not admissible in any court that I know of. However, they are admissible for probable cause in order to generate probable cause. Okay. Uh, So what other red flags were there besides? It's more from an institutional standpoint. So police officers are tasked with traffic enforcement and impaired driving enforcement. And once they suspect someone is impaired, it's difficult to get them off of that suspicion. There was one example of a waitress that got pulled over for suspected marijuana driving. They didn't have any way to determine whether she was indeed impaired by marijuana, except to arrest her, get a blood test, wait about a few months before they got the results, and eventually that said zero, zero. But in the meantime, the police officers kind of defended their own and said, you know, maybe the test was wrong or maybe the independent test that she got, she waited too long before she eventually was tested for marijuana. So they stuck to their guns and they stood by the suspicion that she was impaired for marijuana because the methods that they use to determine that is something called DRE, which is drug recognition expert. And once they go through a training of determining the signs of impairment for everything from alcohol, methamphetamines, heroin, and marijuana, once they go through that and once they're certified as a DRE, then it's very difficult to get them to admit that they could be wrong or that they could be mistaken or potentially have too much confidence. Well, I was going to say that this seems like a good case for the uh, advanced breathalyzer, where assuming it works, then you can just pull someone over. You can, like, if we imagine the sort of ideal of the marijuana breathalyzer, it's a device that you just breathe into and it outputs an accurate result of whether or not you are high. And then we don't have to go through all of the weird field test stuff. There's, you don't need probable cause to do this, I assume, or, well, you don't need any more probable cause than you need to administer the field test in the first place. Is that right, seen? Well, typically, these are voluntary. You can't force people to submit to the field sobriety test. You can't force them to blow into a roadside machine. Uh, so they, they're presented as a voluntary exercise. And usually from the standpoint of the police officer saying, you know, if you're not impaired, then you have nothing to hide. We will let you go if, if, if the tests come back as negative. So is this one of those things where the cops can actually do something if the person refuses? Or do people just submit because they don't know they have the option to refuse? In my jurisdiction, there is no absolutely no consequences to refusing field sobriety test or uh, uh, portable breathalyzer. There are consequences of refusing a a breathalyzer test at the police station because some states have something called an implied consent, whereby just by virtue of driving, you consent to uh, uh, blowing into the machine if there is probable cause that you are impaired from alcohol. And there are some licensing consequences as well as some criminal penalties for refusing to blow into a machine at a police station. Yeah, North Carolina is one of those uh, with the uh, implied consent. And uh, you, if you refuse a breathalyzer when, a, uh, when offered by a police officer, you automatically lose your driver's license for a year. So walking back what I just said then, they at least have the same... <laughs> Uh, ability to administer these tests as they do with the existing roadside tests. And so it seems like, assuming the device is actually accurate, what is the downside to introducing these things? Well, that's a big assumption. 
so if if you want a corollary example, Radley Balco, he's a criminal justice uh, reporter that has covered kind of a whole host of uh, topics within this area. He keeps a, a partial list of uh, things that have been detected as uh, contraband by field test kits. And field test kits is another piece of technology that is usually in the form of some sort of plastic pouch with a, a chemical reagent. You put in the unknown device within the plastic pouch, you break open the chemical reagent. If it turns a specific color, then it's presumptive positive for XYZ. The problem with these tests is that they're notoriously unreliable. They come up posit- positive for all sorts of uh, different things. So Radley Balco lists uh, chocolate chip cookies, motor oil, spearmint, tortilla dough, deodorant, billiards chalk, patchouli, flour, eucalyptus, breath mints, loose lift tea, Jolly Ranchers, on and on and on. It happens very frequently. The problem with this is that if you are arrested because a field test kit finds methamphetamine in your car, that's usually a felony in most states. And you get arrested, you potentially get denied bail or are set a ridiculously high bail that you cannot make. Some people stay in jail for three months awaiting for the next court date or waiting for the state lab to definitively test the, the substance. And in the meantime, they lose their jobs, they lose their, their home, they still have a rec- uh, an arrest record on their uh, record. And so that has some severe consequences for for a false positive. If existing field tests are as bad as you describe, then how is it that they are still given the level of respect that they are? Like, it seems that something which functions that badly shouldn't be admissible in a get you locked up for three months kind of way. Well, this gets into a, probably a longer discussion about the bail system in the United States. So, from the trial perspective, the system works because field test kits are not admissible in court as evidence. You can't show them to a jury in order to prove that something is a substance or not. That works from that standpoint, but that's only from the standpoint of securing a conviction and that there's much higher standards for that. With regards to securing an arrest, the standard in the United States is probable cause and that's an extremely vague and flexible standard. They Courts explicitly try to avoid attaching a number to it, this kind of like touchy-feely standard that no one really knows what it means. The way they usually define it is a reason that is probable, but they don't tell you how probable. It's just kind of this vague notion. Uh, For whatever reason, probable cause is accepted for field test kits in almost all 50 states in the United States in order to effectuate an arrest. And this is done for a whole host of reasons. So the only way to definitively prove that a substance is a substance is to take it to a state lab, have a certified lab technician examine the substance and properly test it. That will tell you what it is if they can tell it's something to begin with. But you can't do that for every single test uh, or presumably you can do it for every arrest. But the concern is that they're going to let go way too many people, way too many guilty people uh, if we stuck to such a stringent standard. Converse being that field tests being a uh, not necessarily admissible, but good for probable cause. Uh, as you know, most criminal cases do not actually go to trial. They're plat out. And uh, I'm sure that if the, you have the prosecutor there saying, you take this to trial and uh, I'm going to go for the max. If you don't, then, you know, I'll go a little easy on you. But you've got this... Uh, We've got this test, and, and um, we're gonna we're gonna nail you to the wall. So, what are you gonna do? Most people don't want to have to, you know, can't necessarily afford an attorney for that long, uh, and 
don't necessarily want to roll the dice. Yeah, and this speaks more of an, uh, in my opinion, an indictment of how uh, the United States treats uh, pretrial detention, where detention is seen almost as a default for criminal accusations. You know, close to 95% of all criminal charges end up in a plea bargain. No one really wants to take it to trial because generally, if you are in jail, the offer is just plead guilty and we'll, you'll get out. You'll get credit for time served. And if you are adamant about fighting your case, you're more likely not only to stay longer just by virtue of waiting for the trial, but you'll get hit by something called a trial tax, where if you do take take it to trial, you're you're likely to get a higher sentence. Typically, this is argued in uh, in the form of the defendant is not showing uh, contrition about their wrongdoing because they decided to fight the charges rather than just accept it. So adding THC breathalyzers to this mix, you're worried that just more people end up in this situation because it, this is just another tool for cops to to get more arrests. Yes, but to be fair, a device that is specifically targeting THC is going to be significantly more accurate than a field test kit, which targets pretty much anything. So from that standpoint, I have my concerns are assuaged, but they're not completely... Uh, taken care of. There's also there's also kind of like a side issue in that we don't really have a good measurement for what counts as impaired in the sense that let's say we can get an instant reading of everyone's THC level in their blood instantly, no matter where they are. Supposedly, this would be great for traffic enforcement because you can weed out... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can distinguish uh, who is above or below the li- the limit. But the limit doesn't really tell you that much. So uh, smoking marijuana, the effects typically last for three to four hours. Uh, and then you're pretty much sober after after that. However, THC stays in your body for 12 to 24 hours. And if you're a habitual st- uh, user, it can stay up in your blood for uh, up to seven days, supposedly. So it, it, it's not a good indication of whether or not you are impaired in at that point. Potentially, maybe breath TAC is more accurate about the specific level of impairment at that specific point. I don't know, but it does have this uh, issue of we don't know what's a good test and what's a good amount. Yeah. And people have different levels of tolerance. Like you said, people who are habitual users tend to need more uh, THC to have any sort of effect on them. So they could be driving around with levels that they don't even notice that don't cause them to drive worse, but for a normal person would, you know, put them on their asses. Yep. The idea of, of prosecuting people for driving impaired instead of, or instead of driving intoxicated, that's something that you would be more okay with. Well, what do you, what do you think the difference between the two is? Oh, intoxicated is I have some sort of chemical in my body and that causes me to be more dangerous on the road while impaired could be, I didn't get much sleep last night, which I guess in most states, being sleepy while driving is is a crime. Like driving very badly is a crime, but driving sleepy is legal, is it not? So long as you don't visibly mess up your driving. I would say there's a giant asterisk next to that, because it really depends on how sleepy you are and how badly you're driving. You can drive good while you're super duper sleepy. That would be impressive. I don't know anybody who could pull that off. I guess you start getting into the philosophy of what it means to be sleepy. And I think that uh, at, at some point, however sleepy you are, it transitions from, you know, you're, you're within the you're within a standard deviation of the average driver, not impaired to reckless endangerment. My only worry is that 
if you change the, the, the criteria to be like, if your reaction time is this bad and give some other tests of, in that domain, that you would actually filter out a lot of sober people who just happen to be kind of old. Which should be the goal, right? That does not seem like a bad thing. Like, if we've agreed that this is the threshold at which people shouldn't be driving, then those people shouldn't be driving. I'm just saying it's a big change that a lot of people might not be happy with. Oh, yeah. Realistically, it would never happen. But and, and not just a lot of people, a lot of voters, specifically the old people that vote. I mean, you, you've highlighted some issues with uh, reforming how traffic is enforced in the United States. Like, there, there was a study out in New York City where... Out of every pedestrian that was killed by a vehicle, only 5% of the drivers received an infraction. And typically, you're only going to see criminal prosecution for a traffic homicide is, is when there are drugs or alcohol involved. Otherwise, law enforcement generally shrugs and thinks, oh, this is too bad, but there's nothing we can do about it. Another thing about the impaired versus um, uh, is that uh, you know, there's plenty of legal over-the-counter medications that can cause uh, an actual impairment in skill that wouldn't necessarily be, they're not illegal, they're not illegal substances, so you wouldn't be A, testing for them, and B, necessarily even caring. Right, like Benadryl or something. Benadryl, uh, uh, Ambien. I've, I've had an Ambien DUI case, uh, but in, in that case, uh, he, um, the driver crashed into a concrete barrier, so it was pretty obvious that he was impaired. And they could barely talk to him because he was kind of falling in and out of uh, consciousness. And this wasn't a recreational user. He, uh, he had a prescription for it. Just wasn't using it properly as evidenced by him crashing. But when they tested his blood, they did find it. Uh, and they, they do detect for anything when they test your blood. I could fill like the, the whole show with like some stories about just like idiotic clients of mine that have gotten themselves into trouble. My favorite was... Uh, I'll just say, it. Uh, like, I had a client who uh, wasn't supposed to be driving at all. He His license was completely revoked for several years. And if he was caught driving, there would be a mandatory minimum penalty of, I think, six months in jail. So that's kind of the how much on notice he was he was put on. He got pulled over because he was speeding. He was doing donuts at an intersection. And when uh, they tried to pull him over, he started running away, driving away. When they finally caught up to him, he refused to to blow into the breathalyzer machine at the station. So they charged him. They enhanced his uh, penalties for the DUI. And then at one point, he asked me, do they only look for alcohol when they take your blood? And I said, no, they look for everything. And he, he said, oh, fuck, they're going to find meth. So he just kind of tagged every single thing that he shouldn't have been doing in, in one night. Really aggravated me. <laughs> wow. Okay, guys, if you're going to break the law, break one law at a time. <laughs> also, uh, there's there's added penalties for when you get multiple DUIs within a certain amount of years. And he was literally one week away from the window. You'd think his car insurance company would just send him a oh, notice. Oh, he didn't have insurance. Like, uh, <laughs> like hey, guys, just don't try it. Drive drunk for next, the next week and you'll be fine. Your rates nope. will go down. I mean, that, that's how the system is supposed to play. But of course, he didn't have insurance. <laughs> His insurance rates would, I mean, he wouldn't even be able to get insurance because he can't, he doesn't even have a valid license. Oh, forgot about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The rabbit hole goes deep in this one. I had so many assumptions about like having insurance, <laughs> having a license. Yeah. Wow. That tells me a lot about the people that you associate with in real life. Yes. Yeah. Uh, being a public defender, your, uh, your social circle bro broadens out significantly. Uh, so, uh, 
so this kind of dovetails into uh, Radley Balko's argument from 2010, where he argued for the legalization of drunk driving. And not because he doesn't think that drunk driving is a problem, but that he doesn't think that we should use a per se limit to determine whether someone is dangerous or not. And he advocated more for impaired driving of any kind. That's what you're saying, Jeff? Yeah. That my, my only worry with that is that there might be things that are hard to test for that would count as impaired driving. For example, judgment. Uh, you might have great reaction time, but you might think it's a really good idea to drive into a concrete wall. And it's it's hard to test for that. Well, concrete wall, is that seems unlikely to come up, but you might think it's a really good idea to do street racing at 150 miles an hour. That count as impaired driving if you think that's a good idea, just like on its face? <laughs> I guess not exactly. How stupid do you have to be before it counts as impaired? It's not necessarily impaired. It's more you're choosing to, to take on a very high risk. Yeah, I guess your judgment is impaired. Yeah. How about this? Like your tolerance for risk may be impaired. That that could that could co- cover a lot of situations. So I, I intellectually I'm sympathetic to the idea of legalizing drunk driving because I do recognize that some people drive perfectly even when they have a very high breath alcohol content. There's also some people that drive really really poorly after just one drink. And there's a whole host of situations that are more common, potentially, and just as dangerous as drunk drunk driving, and that's lack of sleep, uh, lack of attention, being on your phone while driving, fiddling with the radio or, you know, losing something on the floorboard and trying to fish it out as you're driving. There's so many ways that operating a vehicle can go wrong. And to me, it does seem myopic to, to... focus so much criminal prosecution on this one specific instant. But I recognize why that is, and that's because it's much, much easier to prove that there was alcohol in your system rather than you were looking at your phone at this specific instant. Yeah, I think the argument in favor of keeping it banned is we would ban all those things too if we could, and we have tried to ban some of them, like being on your phone, but a lot of them are just really hard unless everyone has a camera in their car at all times or something to that effect. And in some instances, the enforcement causes the problem to be worse. So for example, when they banned texting and driving, people still texted and drove, but they held their phone at a lower angle, which meant that their attention was Uh, distracted even more. Right. They couldn't see the road as well. Any sort of technology that would do a good job of figuring out is, was someone on their phone at this time? uh, Were they impaired in some way? It would also be almost certainly a huge uh, privacy infringement. So it would have to be a camera inside of your car or something so that you could see what the person was doing. And I could see why a lot of people would not be in favor of that. There is an arbitration argument for that in that if you want really, really low insurance rates, just put this camera in you in your car and we'll give you a heavily discounted one. So you're you're exchanging your privacy for a significantly lower insurance rate. And some countries do that. I think South Korea does. I don't know if I remember this correctly. And similarly, I think uh, uh, once uh, self-driving cars become a real thing, um, that will cause insurance rates to go down and also um, reduce the need for these kinds of laws to begin with. So I was correct. The South Korea does uh, have a very high adoption for dash cams, and that's because insurance companies there give you a heavily discounted rate if you have it installed. That's a an example of a country that has kind of shifted its uh, norm expectation by widely adopting dash cams and widely giving up 
that level of privacy for some something of value. All right, let's move on to private prisons, private police, or general abolition of the two. I guess I was the one who linked to this topic. That was one of my friends who is a bit of a communist, and he wants to abolish all police and prisons. And I was talking to him a little bit before, and the, I didn't know that this was a position that people actually took and, until like four days ago. And the reason I found out was I was reading an article in a local paper about some uh, building that was donated to an organization that wants to abolish all prisons and police. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What do they want to replace it with? And the answer is, I'm not sure yet what they want to replace it with. But their main argument seems to be that the existing justice system is so terrible that it any replacement would be an improvement. I'm not sure if that's true, but there are lots of people who have proposed replacements, and those are interesting to talk about. I generally consider myself a, a prison and police abolitionist, but even I recognize that there's a lot of Martin Bailey theatrics happening. People will say, let's abolish prisons. And then if you ask them, well, what do you want to do about very, very violent criminals? They tend to retreat into a general critique of uh, the criminal justice system without really addressing that specific uh, concern. And there's a lot, the reason why this is so effective is because there's a lot to critique when it comes to the criminal justice system. So the I can give like a very brief lay of the land. When it comes to prison abolition and police abolition, you tend to have two divergent camps. You have the left-leaning camps that uh, object to to it from a more philosophical standpoint, I suppose. And they have a whole host of uh, arguments against it. And when you ask, generally what I've seen is when you ask them specific questions about what to do with violent criminals, I've seen a lot of what I think is unpersuasive falling back to, well, we wouldn't have crime if we didn't have capitalism, which is not very convincing to many people unless you're already of that mindset. The other camp is in my opinion, much more thoughtful. And that's the anarcho-capitalist camp. David Friedman in his seminal book, The Machinery of Freedom, has extensively described what a system of private law enforcement could look like using kind of basic economic intuition to figure out where the incentives are going to lie. And he addresses a lot of uh, counter arguments against it. Uh, Robin Hansen has also proposed his own uh, uh, standpoint. And I believe uh, the philosopher Michael Humer and his book, The Problem of Political Authority, has also addressed some potential ways to have private enforcement. So I want to take a quick shot at Robin Hansen's proposal first, because he describes it as prison abolition, where the idea is that you have to get crime insurance for yourself in the same way that you have to get insurance for your car if you're going to be driving. And the problem with his proposal is that he ends up describing where if you end up repeatedly committing crimes, then you your crime insurance will go up and eventually you will end up with the case where you can only get afford crime insurance on the condition that you stay in some limited area for like a work factory or something. And not only has that reinvented prisons, but it's reinvented slave labor, which does not seem like a goal of prison abolition. 
is arguably a worthwhile system if you're Robin Hanson, but it does not seem to have accomplished the stated goal. So the, the brief blog post that he has describing this is very terse and I think rather unpersuasive. I'm willing to give Robin Hanson the benefit of the doubt, but I, I kind of need to see it sketched out a lot more. We can also describe um, an alternative legal system. David Friedman, in his book, uh, Law and Economics, he describes what Iceland had. And he characterizes the Icelandic uh, medieval legal system as quasi-anarchist in the sense that there wasn't really a judiciary. There was a legislative body that met once a year. And maybe there was one person that you would consider the executive and they would essentially meet once a year, recount what the laws were, and that was then understood to be what governed the each village or each town in terms of how they conducted themselves. Every dispute was arbitrated in the sense that they would seek out a, a third party to negotiate and come to a decision as to whether specific conduct warrants uh, payment or uh, more severe punishment. So they would kind of generally the the incentive is to avoid bloodshed if it's possible. So if one person stole someone else's cows, then either you you have to track them down. But then when you do, you either force them to pay back the lost value or if they refuse to cooperate, they get branded as an outlaw. Now, being branded as an outlaw is a very interesting punishment within Icelandic uh, medieval society, because what it means is that you have no legal protection. If someone steals from you, you have no recourse. If someone murders your wife, you have no recourse. There's nothing you can do because you are considered outside of the law. And so you're, you become an easy target for anyone that wants to take advantage of you. And supposedly that is sufficiently, sufficiently high of a severe punishment that it's almost close to a death penalty. Because if someone wants to murder you, there's nothing that no one... None of the institutions are going to step in to protect you. None of the incentives are going to be there to, to safeguard you. You can have something similar in an anarcho-capitalist uh, society where if you're so criminally corrupt or criminally bankrupt to the point where you literally cannot afford criminal insurance, then you become an outlaw and anyone can take advantage of you. And that would be the, the punishment or the disincentive, the deterrence to avoid that fate. I think the biggest issue with a lot of the uh, the problems with the existing system and even any replacements is not what to do with people once they're caught, but just catching them. It seems like most crimes people get away with, and the disincentive seems to be how likely am I to get caught and not what is the punishment. That's something that gets addressed with the American legal system. Um, we, discuss, we discussed this last time in the last episode in the sense that the likelihood of getting caught is relatively low to the point where the system feels the need to compensate, potentially overcompensate whenever it does catch someone. That's right. So I'm just wondering how the Icelandic system worked with the low rate of catching people for crimes, or was it actually a pretty good job that the Icelandic system did of catching people for crimes? I think the expectation is throughout history, there was a baseline level of crime that people were just habituated to. If you look at the historic murder rate, it has been pretty high up until the last 200 years or so, according to Steve Pinker. 
And so you get this uh, steady decline in violence. And I think largely because you have uh, a greater greater amount of uh, institutions there to safeguard. A lot of protections that were in place back then was just that the fact that you know people. If you know your cousins, you, you know the neighbor's cousins, you know everyone involved, it was very difficult to remain anonymous and to escape whenever you did commit a misdeed. That became a much bigger problem once you had cities where it was become it did become much easier to become anonymous after you committed a crime. Throughout the Holy Roman Empire and uh, German cities across uh, medieval times and the Renaissance times, a, a common form of punishment was just banishment, where you kick someone out of the city, they become someone else's problem, not yours, but that was sufficient enough to deal with your own concerns. The concept of punishment has evolved depending on what the circumstances are. And I think inevitably you're always going to have some level of some some risk that someone is not going to get caught because if the chance of you getting caught was 100%, then no one would commit any crimes unless they already calculated or in the heat of the moment thought that it was worthwhile. Right. But even a rate of, of like 30% would probably be great for most crimes besides murder. It depends. I think uh, for misdemeanors, the clearance rate is usually around 15% nationally. I don't think there's any specific FBI statistics, but that's what I was able to piece together based on very limited data. The chances that somebody commits a misdemeanor that they will be convicted is about 15%? Not convicted, but cleared is a different statistic. It's when the police identify someone that they're sufficiently sure is the perpetrator. And when it comes to misdemeanors, you're talking about a whole host of things. So, you know, stealing a $3 jar of peanut butter to assaulting a random person on the street, potentially viciously, that can be a misdemeanor under certain circumstances. Actually, it lines up with my experiences being a victim of crime. It's like out of like the six times that people have tried to do shit to me, like only one of them got caught. So it's surprising just how how easy it is for for criminals to get away with stuff. I was the at least to me in my experience. Do you want to describe your instances? I'll give a like one, I guess. It's usually crazy vagrants. Two years ago, I lived in Oakland and it was around Halloween and there was a house that was decorated really cool on my block. And I was going to take a picture of it. And this homeless guy starts riding his bicycle through the frame. And he just looks at me and he says, don't you take my picture? And I said, okay. And I put my phone down and waited for him to ride out of frame. And once he was out, pick up the phone and he just looks at me again. He's, he's totally really far away. And he just yells like motherfucker and just starts chasing after me. And so I start running away. He finds some cinder blocks in a neighbor's yard and just starts picking them up and like running after me. Like he wants to bash my head in. And at this point I'm on the phone with 911 and they're like, are you in Emeryville or Oakland? And I'm like, I'm at whatever street, like send whatever cops. I don't care. The cops took a good five minutes to show up. And I was just fortunate that I could outrun the guy. And eventually he got tired. He couldn't catch me. He got on his bicycle and he rode off and the cops never caught him. And it's the same deal for times set in the tenderloin when crazy people would like, you know, some guy with a board with some nails in it would chase after me one time yelling, I'm going to kill you. And it's just never find him. Yeah, it's pretty common, I guess. Yeah, and you have people like me, defense attorneys, to thank as well. <laughs> uh, I I was just surprised at how long it took police to show up in that circumstance. Uh, it just seems to be a roll of the die how 
quickly they'll show up. Sometimes it's 60 seconds. Sometimes it's hours. And even if there was like a crime where you need police pretty fast. So uh, David, David Friedman proposes that we have crime insurance. Well, not really insurance. Basically, in the same way that you might have a bodyguard, he proposes that everyone have a security company. And exactly what the security company does is it depends on the company. But the point is you hire someone that is paid to make sure you don't become the victim of a crime. And this could be an actual bodyguard. It could be like one of those stickers you put on your window that says protected by such and such company. And then if anyone does break into your house, they will try to get retribution on that person to create a disincentive for doing that. And he describes that in a world where everyone has these companies, the problem is what happens if one person say steals another person's television and then the person who stole the television tries to have their crime prevention company prevent you from taking it back and the answer is that your company would call his company and say hey we see that your guy has stolen a television from our guy give it back and then Either they can get into a fight where they each send six beefy dudes to try to protect and take back the television, or they can go to arbitration and resolve it through a judge. And because he's David Friedman, he, of course, proposes a free market solution where there are people who just specialize in being judges rather than are government appointed or anything. And people will go to judges. The fair ones will rise to the top because no one would want to patronize a judge known for unfair results. If you believe really hard in the sort of spherical frictionless capitalism, then it seems like a good system. To start off the complaints that I have with it, one of them is that theoretically, imagine that we live in this world where everyone has a crime prevention company everyone pays their protection racket yes and so in this world not a lot of people commit crime because standard reason of we have effectively functioning law enforcement and then one person has an incentive to stop paying their protection money because it's not immediately visible like you don't have a floating neon sign above your head saying this person is or isn't protected and so you end up with an equilibrium where theoretically some percentage of people stop paying their protection because like if we were in the 22nd century and we could actually have digital neon signs above people, someone has incentive to defect from paying into the protection racket. And this works because you can't tell. Like if we were in the 22nd century with floating neon hologram signs above your head, then the problem would be solved. But because we're not, people have an incentive to defect from the system. And then people keep defecting and the rate falls to, say, 50 percent. And suddenly criminals have an incentive to mug random people because there's a decent chance that they're not actually paying their protection money. And in the spherical frictionless capitalism world, 
information is all perfectly freely transmitted. And so we don't have this problem. But as soon as you introduce legibility issues with who is and isn't protected, I think there are some problems with it. There seem to me, there seems to be an easy solution to that in that you, every company publicizes who their clients are and who is protected. That seems to be a necessary foundation because you would want to know which company you want to deal with. So someone can collate all the different providers and see who is left out. And that puts a big target on their back because everyone knows that they're not protected. I could also see people doing the equivalent for their bodies that you would do for properties of the protected by whatever company signs where you just have like a patch or something on your sleeve. And you're like, uh, if you mess with me, Al's protection racket is going to come after you. Yeah, like a, a mini badge, the kind that tech workers wear. <laughs> yeah. What are some other uh, downsides to David Friedman's uh, system? If you are flat broke and homeless, then you have no protection company, and then you just have effectively no rights, which is a substantial downgrade from a stateful society where even the homeless get protected by the cops. And this seems like a problem for everyone who doesn't want it to be legal to murder homeless people. I do wonder if David Friedman would agree with you that homeless people are currently protected by the cops. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Although when you said murder of a homeless person, yes, that would get investigated. Uh, Probably not on the same level as what people would consider murder of a civilian. Yeah, they are less protected than we might like and definitely less protected than it says on paper, but they're significantly more than zero protected, which is what you would be under David Friedman's system if you had zero net worth. Do we know what percentage of like what how much you would have to pay per person to get the current level of of police protection? Like, is it a hundred dollars a year per person or what? The argument is probably going to be you take whatever the police department budget is in your area and, you know, give it the freedom discount because the likelihood that it's privatized is going to be cheaper, or at least that's the argument. Right. David Freeman likes to use the, the, the heuristic of just cut the number in half and that's the private, <laughs> private sector cost. <laughs> so it's, it's feasible. It's not completely out of the ordinary, especially given with the, with the notion that uh, an anarcho-capitalist society like the one David Friedman describes is probably going to have a lot less laws. So you're going to need a lot less law enforcement. Yeah. And I could see enough charities. There are already charities that give food and phones to homeless people and tents and sleeping bags. I could see them also just paying the cost of, of protecting people. Yeah, that does seem to be relatively trivial because the, the concerns that someone with zero net worth is not going to be able to subscribe to a protection racket, that's analogous to someone with zero net worth is not going to be able to feed themselves, which there's already a standard libertarian response to that. The standard libertarian response is something that I am somewhat unsatisfied with because it's basically someone else will take care of it. The someone else is private charity, but this is Unlike a lot of the economic arguments, which are basically extrapolating from capitalism, it is you can't prove that even in theory, in libertarian paradise, the homeless will be taken care of because people do not donate in the ideal fashion to charities now 
sometimes they kind of just skip over it. And sometimes libertarians will say, oh, that's because the government is taking care of some of this stuff. And if we abolished that, then people would be more incentivized to give to charity. But this is there is a leap there that is missing from the sort of clean theoretical perfection of maximum capitalism, like in the anarcho-capitalist police thing. Yeah, it is a bit of a hand wave. The whole charity will take care of things. I have seen uh, living in San Francisco, the amount of homelessness and the amount that gets spent on homelessness makes me think that I don't know if there's a good solution here at all. I think Last year, the San Francisco budget for homelessness was a quarter billion dollars, and there are about 7,500 homeless in San Francisco. So that's like 30,000 a year per homeless person. And it's not getting better. What, what is that spent on? For that much <laughs> I don't money, know. give them all homes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember looking this up and I was like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? It's, it's spent on everything but homes. You couldn't buy them homes in San Francisco. You could buy them homes somewhere else, but there, there's enough like shelters and and stuff going around that like most people in San Francisco now who are homeless are are homeless voluntarily. This, the weather's pretty nice. What do you mean by homeless voluntarily? That is, they don't want to. Uh, the, the homeless voluntarily homeless, as opposed to, oh, I don't have enough. I, I, they don't want to live in a home and you know not do whatever it is they're doing. I think there's one the the one caveat to this voluntarily thing is drug usage because most homeless shelters don't let you in if you have either I want to say drugs or pets. So some homeless people have pets and they're not going to get rid of them. Obviously, like that's the the one thing that they can really enjoy in life. So uh, I got to go dig up the polls again, but I want to say like, there's the concept of, oh, I want to get my life back on track. And, and then there's the concept of, oh, I'd like just, you know, sleeping out wherever and just doing, doing whatever I want to do in Golden Gate Park. I mean, the notion that it's voluntary, I would put in quotes because you're operating within a specific paradigm and a specific context. So voluntary is, is relative. Yeah, like if you cut them all checks for $50,000 a year, then would they all still be homeless? Because if they could get housing for free and they would remain homeless, then it's voluntary. But if they had enough money to buy a house and they would choose to do so, then they're not really voluntarily homeless. How did we get into this topic? Uh, private law. Yeah. Private police. Yeah, private worth. So... Um, David Friedman describes one method of replacing the current uh, system with something that is more anarcho-capitalist and more libertarian-minded. There's some, there's more concrete proposals from, uh, I suppose, what you would consider the left portion of the critiques, and that's something known as uh, restorative justice. Recently, it's almost transformed into a buzzword, but there are concrete examples of how it operates and the fact that it actually exists and not something fantasy. There is an organization called Common Justice. This is located in New York City, and it's uh, head by Danielle Sered. And uh, she was on uh, on the media podcast on NPR and gave uh, a pretty thorough examination of what her approach would look like. And it's branded as an alternative to incarceration. 
So if you look at incarceration or if you look at the criminal justice system as a whole, you have a variety of goals. One is deterrence. You're going to do what we tell you to do. Otherwise, we're going to punish you. And the hope is that that would be enough to deter people from misbehaving. The other is just retribution. And I think that's more of a not necessarily a good quote unquote policy goal, but something that is so innate to human nature that is almost impossible to get rid of. Humans just appear to really enjoy uh, hurting people that have hurted them. <laughs> God damn it. Hurting people that have hurt them. Hurt me, daddy. Uh, another part is uh, ideally rehabilitation, where you give the prisoners enough tools to properly function in society without, without having to resort to breaking crimes. And the last one is just incapacitation, where if someone is so dangerous by incarcerating them, you get them out of society and incapacitate them from doing further crimes. Or at least doing further crimes to innocent people to probably do crimes to other criminals in prison. Yeah, that's fair. So it's kind of a form of damage control. It's like, we don't know what, what we're, we don't know what to do with you, but we're at least going to keep you out of society so that you don't hurt, you don't hurt anyone else. So restorative justice is an approach that tries to get around some of these aspects. And the main framework is comes off really kind of kumbaya, hippie bullshit, because it's a bunch of people sitting in a circle talking about their feelings. But what it tries to do is link the victim of a crime with the perpetrator of a crime. And the goal is to get the perpetrator of the crime to see, to explain why they acted a particular way and to explore their motivations for acting that particular way. And you get some interesting stories and it's not quite clear exactly how how effective it is in the long run. I'm not aware of any studies. But one example that was cited, and this is purely an anecdote, was the victim of, of an assault that uh, as a result of him getting robbed by this teenager on the street, he had a a debilitating fear of being approached by anybody on the street, some form of uh, post-traumatic tr- stress disorder where any interaction with a stranger caused up the same, conjured up the same experience that he went through. And one of the things that happened was they met with the perpetrator and he explained that he was, this, sound, this is real, but it sounds, it sounds fake the way it's told. He explained that he learned how to fight from his brother and they had a, a sparring session where the victim was shown how to defend himself against someone like the perpetrator. So the per- perpetrator was showing him grapple moves, how to get out of uh, locks, how to uh, escape, how to like twist arms. And he got to the point where he didn't find that experience as debilitating as it was because he was able to physically and he was able to realistically surmount it because he was in front of the same person that robbed him, that, that assaulted him. And he was able to properly defend himself because he was taught by that person. So from the standpoint of benefiting society, we want the perpetrator not to rob someone anymore. And potentially this interaction with one of their victims where they're humanized might accomplish that. We also want the person to feel whole, the person that has been harmed in this case, the one that is uh, in fear of any stranger on the street. We want them to be, to get back to where they were and maybe even gain something out of it. And from that standpoint, this is a win-win situation for both of them, assuming that it does work out to the same extent that it does, to the extent described and assuming that this is something that you can scale up. The core of this whole system is that both is that the victim 
confronts the perpetrator and the victim is is happy with the outcome, whatever that is, and that outcome is not incarceration usually. Yes, that's that's one of the goals. Some people just don't want to be don't want to participate and they just want pure retribution. Like fuck that person, I want them in jail, I want them to suffer. Some people find that experience to be to be wanting. If someone is in jail, they don't get back what they've lost. They don't uh, regain the sense of peace and stability that they once had. If they're the uh, if they're the victim of a violent attack, a violent assault, a violent rape or anything similar within or anything within that penumbra, they don't really regain that capacity if they find themselves debilitated after an attack. And one method of doing that is to build these bridges between the aggressor and the victim and find some way to to find some peace afterwards. And um, I think my favorite way that she sold this approach is she she cited an example of a mother who had her nine-year-old uh, also, uh, assaulted and robbed by a 12-year-old. Crime was serious enough that the 12-year-old was going to spend two years in juvenile detention. And the question that the mother had is, after two years, the 12-year-old is going to be 14, and they're going to be in the same neighborhood, and they're still going to be interacting with my child, and nothing is necessarily going to be better. They might feel some severe bitterness from the from the victim because the victim was uh, paramount in getting them incarcerated. So the idea is, even from the standpoint of a victim, what outcome do you want? Do you want the person to actually learn their lesson? Do you want them to be rehabilitated? Or do you just want them to be punished for two years? And it's a sense of where the argument from Daniel Surrett is that the system doesn't necessarily help the people that it that it's meant to help. And it definitely doesn't help the people that it, it's uh, that it's incarcerating. The thing that I always wonder when I hear restorative justice is, like you said, some people just think, fuck that guy, I want him to rot in prison. And what does restorative justice do when one of those people is a victim? Well, there's not that much. Uh, that's the that's a problem. If the if the victim doesn't want to participate in this uh, process, the the system revo- res- uh, the system reverts to its default, and its default is incarceration. What percentage of people who are of victims who are given the option to choose restorative justice choose it? Do you know? No, I don't know. It's uh, it, these are always kind of piecemeal organizations, and I don't think there's going to be good statistics because. They, there might be a selection bias in terms of who chooses to come to these organizations and who the organizations want. Also, there's going to be issues with reporting where they're probably not going to report honestly what data they do have because naturally they have an incentive to make restorative justice look as good as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, my description of it is almost steel manning it. I'm sympathetic to its aims, but I can't claim that it's, they have definitive proof that this is something workable and something that is sufficient to replace the entire system. Yeah. I, I do think, um, with, with the whole restorative justice thing, it doesn't seem to be making things worse. Uh, so I don't see a problem with it, especially if the victim is happier with the outcome. Uh, I would be very surprised if, if the, if a victim were happier with the outcome and then the criminal caused more harm to society in the future because the amount of rehabilitation that existing prison does is, you know, counterproductive at best, right? At least when you look at it from the United States perspective. Uh, but the United States is an outlier in so many ways as the biggest uh, per capita prison population. 
Do other countries try, have they, have other countries tried restorative justice stuff or is it only a, a U.S. thing right now? I think you can find some forms of it in more traditional forms of um, arbitration. So would truth and reconciliation like in South Africa be uh, something akin to this? Yes, absolutely. That would definitely fall under restorative justice. And there's been plenty of truth and reconciliation commissions across uh, across the world, across many decades. So it's worth noting that part of the U.S.'s enormous prison population has to do with the fact that they have an actually higher crime rate than a lot of the developed Western world. But even if you do control for that, people end up in prison for more years per the crime. And also there's the argument that the U.S. prison system is bad in ways that cause the increased crime rate. Right. And I don't want there to be an assumption that if you reduce law enforcement, then you just by necessity have an increase of crime that is kind of uncontrolled. When you don't have the institution such as classic law enforcement to rely on, there's a lot of informal enforcement that happens. So I would say like in, in an Arab country, there would be, if there is an assault between two families, the two families would, would talk to each other, maybe shame the perpetrator into admitting guilt and then work it out. It doesn't, there's no real sense of seeking incarceration for something as simple as an assault. That system can only exist if everyone knows each other. And if there's sufficient social cohesion to have everyone submit to this uh, informal system, if, if there isn't enough social homogeneity then people can just defect and ignore it, and there's there wouldn't be many much consequences to that. And that system works best when it's when you're not talking about intertribal kind of situations where the, your, your group isn't going to care that you did anything to that other group over there. Uh, Albania has an interesting problem in that revenge killings are very very common, and uh, almost always they are the result of a property dispute. I'm gonna I'm gonna post an article uh, regarding this. This article details how much of a problem it is for Albanian families and how how much it starts this uh, kind of infinite cycle of revenge killings to revenge the revenge killing and something that never stops and to the point where historically it's been sons, first sons that have been the target of revenge killings, but they've gotten so prevalent that even uh, women and daughters have been uh, the target as well. So that would be an, uh, that would be an alternative to... Uh, uh, <laughs> settling our property disputes in court. <laughs> I mean, technically that's within the scope of the anarcho-capitalist system where just instead of coming to arbitration, the private security companies just fight each other. Yeah. Maybe not what David Friedman had in mind, but that is uh, technically a, an alternative. <laughs> and that is the, I think one of the arguments against it, that just, it wouldn't work out people wouldn't manage to coordinate perfectly in the ways they need to for it to result in a stable society. And you would have anarchy in the sense that people normally use the word. Uh, the one thing I do like about Friedman's proposals, though, is that he almost always proposes some incremental way to get there so that if it starts not working out, it's easier to back go backtrack than it would be if you had some revolution. I don't remember what his policy was for private courts and law besides pointing out that existing courts are becoming more and more just overworked, especially for any sort of, of companies trying to litigate problems. And so they tend to go to uh, arbitration instead. 
So on restorative justice, is there an answer for how, like, I understand the idea of using it to reduce the current prison population's problems, but like I mentioned earlier, there's always going to be the guy who just wants the criminal to rot in prison. And so is there a way for restorative justice to actually accomplish prison abolition, given that there are some people who really want to punish people hard rather than talk it out and do the sort of touchy-feely ideal? Well, I I think to the extent that any system is uh, a reflection of uh, the population's preferences, as long as you have a preference for retribution, you're always going to have some form of uh, punishment, whether that's incarceration or corporal punishment. So the only way to get to that point is to sever the link or have a population where the preference for retribution is insignificant. It sounds like the answer is no in that uh, restorative justice does not have a way to actually abolish prison unless everyone sort of has the hippie-ish preferences that the restorative justice people would very much like them to have. Yeah, of course. Um, But you can say that about any, any other institution. It only exists by by the grace of uh, the people that it serves. It's a problem for them in that they say they want to abolish prison, and it seems like you have to acknowledge that not everyone else wants that, and under restorative justice, you can't get there. Whereas under a democratic system, you can say, I don't care what those people want, we're going to do it my way. And restorative justice... <laughs> does not have that answer. Wait, what do you mean? Why do you this why do you distinguish between democratic system and restorative justice system? Well, I mean, like if we put it to a vote what kind of justice system we should have and we say restorative justice, then we can't we still have to have prisons. Well, actually no, not necessarily. Because right now prosecution is done by a government employee. They're the ones that seek out enforcement of the law. And there are instances where the victims in a crime will say, for example, we don't want the death penalty for the perpetrator. We don't want the death penalty for the murderer of our mother or something like that. And there are very, uh, very frequent cases where the prosecutor, despite what they say, ignore them. So you can still have a default. It doesn't have to be one way or the other. So if you have a system of restorative justice, then the default becomes restorative justice. And if it's uh, heralded and managed by a system of government employees to the same caliber and uh, uh, hallmarks as uh, prosecutors, then then you can have restorative justice even if the person disagrees with it. And it can take other forms. It doesn't necessarily need to. It doesn't need to involve the specific victim in this case. So there's some forms of it. So if you're if you're caught shoplifting, then you might attend a class about how your shoplifting causes harm to the economy. Or something banal like that, but there are there are ways to address it. I have to it. go on a tangent with that. That's something that Walmart is doing, where if you get caught shop, shoplifting, they can threaten to prosecute you, and the alternative is that they will not prosecute if you agree to go to a, a agree to go to a class on shoplifting. And the trick with it is the class has a monetary cost which has to be paid by the shoplifter. And so Walmart is currently being sued for the fact that they are basically blackmailing people with give us money or we will charge you with shoplifting. 
There's ways to get around that. They can just have a third party be the shoplifting provider. Or they can have a third party be the shoplifting class provider. Oh, yeah. It's not like it ruins the system. It's just a related anecdote that I wanted to share. What's your opinion on other uh, uh, punishments that might not be in the restorative justice sense, but might not be prison, such as just having to wear a placard outside that says, I'm a shoplifter for a day? I've represented many shoplifters, and I don't think that will dissuade the vast majority of them. Because uh, a significant motivation for shoplifting, at least within my client pool, is heroin addiction. And uh, there's nothing really that, that can dissuade people from, from pursuing substance use when they have uh, an addiction to it. So you're saying it's better than incarcerating them, but it's you know, just not going to help. I mean, if you ask me how to fix the shoplifting problem, I would say adopt the, the model that Switzerland has and just give people free heroin. Because... Generally, a lot of the crime that is associated with the homelessness and people who are addicted to drugs are property crimes. And overwhelmingly, it's almost always uh, shoplifting because typically the way it works is people shoplift. They try to do a fraudulent return in order to find some cash or they shoplift and try to sell the the things on, on Facebook market or um, whatever other platform that they can find so that they can get cash so that they can buy drugs. If you give people free drugs, they don't have to shoplift anymore. And they, you get rid of a lot of uh, in- incidental crimes that have nothing to do with the consumption of drugs. The, the way that their Switzerland's program works is, did they just like, you just walk up and say, hey, free heroin, please. And they just give it to you. Or is it, this is a, this is a building and you go in there and you do your heroin and then you leave. No, it's uh, you. You essentially register with a with a designated organization. So part of the sneaky part of the sneaky feature is that you interface with a medical professional, so that you at least are taken care of on some level. You get free medical grade heroin, and you get it injected by the doctor, and you are monitored while you're consuming this heroin. And the idea is it's not just anyone that can walk in. I think you have to sign up or at least designate yourself as an addict. It's not just a bachelor party or something. (laughs) I don't think so, no. So how do they source this heroin? Well, heroin is easy to make. Uh, It's it's a Schedule 1, but like... Heroin's not a Schedule 1 equivalent in all countries. It happens to be the United States, but it's still it's still prescribable in England, for instance. And fun fact, the morphine and cocaine are Schedule 2, which is also prescribable in the United States. So is meth. Wait, cocaine is prescribable? Yes. <laughs> co- co- cocaine is prescribable. It is, it is an absolutely amazing painkiller in your nose, shockingly. Um, and so... Wait, when we say prescribable, do we mean, like, legally able to be prescribed, or there is actually a reason to prescribe it there is actually a reason to prescribe it in fact i, I believe liquid cocaine is the is the uh, painkiller of choice for rhinoplasty oh what you weren't kidding about the nose no i was not kidding about the nose <laughs> it's a topical anesthetic but huh, makes sense it's a, it's a topical anesthetic that works very very well in um mucosal membranes uh, and because it diffuses so easily and then it, it but it kills the the nerves um, and their, the pain conduction so fast. Um, and I, I don't know 
if anybody's had, I've never had no nasal surgery, but I, I've, uh, uh, understand from other people that it is excruciating if you don't have the right anesthetic. Wow. Today I learned 93. Are you excited? That's just so hilarious. The idea that <laughs> cocaine is a painkiller specifically for the nose. <laughs> like, that sounded like a joke. <laughs> Uh, please uh, consult your local Canadian lawyer before you go out and do anything. And I'll 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 find a suitable link to put in that um, backs up that statement. Okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, so that's that's the Switzerland model where you just keep. Uh, I think it's adopted in uh, a few other countries that I can't think of it off the top of my head. But that's one way to uh, get rid of uh, property crime because the incentive is essentially gone once you uh, once you get rid of that. A significant money sink. Yeah, it's not just the the cost of the stuff being stolen, but the cost of all of the law enforcement around it, and all of the different different ways in which shops have to protect their merchandise. So, yeah, it's sad that it would be almost impossible to implement such a policy uh, in the U.S. I mean, it's possible; it's just not politically possible. Uh, but even from the standpoint of uh, just the shoplifting itself, it's, it's highly inefficient. So if someone, you know, steals a $30 bottle of liquor, they're probably going to sell it for $10 and it's probably worth that much to someone off the street. So there's, there's a great deal of loss. So that would be an alternative to the current system, which I find to just be a waste of time for everyone. People are addicted to heroin. They're not going to stop on pain of a few days or a few months in jail. That's not going to address the root cause and once they're out, they're going to need to find a way to finance their habit and they're not going to be able to hold a steady job. So what they end up doing is shoplifting. Uh, I, I had a friend that was homeless for seven years and I asked him how he funded his heroin habit. And he told me, and I've heard this in other, from other sources, so it's not just one person, that it co- they spend approximately $100 a day on heroin. And I was kind of shocked by this amount. And I just said, how do you do it? And he, his, his preferred method was shoplifting video games from Target and shoplifting textbooks because textbooks uh, retain their value really well. Hardware stores are a really good shoplifting target because you can sell the, the stuff that you steal from there is relatively small, but still valuable. That's amazing that, to know that the, that much shoplifting has to occur. Yeah. And I think about it even from the standpoint of someone that totally does not give a shit about heroin addicts. Even if you're completely selfish, then it still is a good idea to just give people free heroin because then you don't have to deal with their bullshit. You don't have to deal with the with the increase in price from shoplifting. You don't have to deal with the property crimes that are related. A lot of burglaries, a lot of trespassing uh, are uh, are entirely motivated by uh, heroin addiction or substance addiction. It really does uh, uh, bring to the front of the mind the concept that if you did legalize uh, or at least decriminalize and allow people to get uh, government supplied uh, narcotics, that it would actually cost less in the long run um, because the dead weight loss is lower. You're putting fewer people in prisons. You need less police um, uh, enforcement of things. It just seems like a good plan all around. Yeah, it's going to be my presidential campaign platform. The obvious concern with the system is that you will get a bunch of people saying, I'd like to try some heroin. Give me some free government heroin, please. And the fact that it is working in Switzerland and they don't have 10 times as many addicts because they're giving out free heroin 
kind of proves that concern has limited scope. And I, and I think that concern, um, it, it's relevant how you pitch it, of course. And if their system is you have to go and register and then you're on a list and everybody knows you're um, that's going to dissuade a large chunk of people, I think. Yeah, only the people who really, really, really want it would sign up then, which I guess that's that's beneficial. So, restorative justice. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, next time you're the victim of shoplifting crime, you should want to give free heroin to the perpetrator, I believe. I think that's the lesson, yes. Yeah. There we go. Since Friedman's whole shtick is to do things incrementally, have we noticed much of a, or have, sorry, have you noticed much of a change in the amount of, like, either private security guards or private companies that are involved in, in uh, criminal cases nowadays, or, or has it been about the same? There is an interesting story from um, United Kingdom where, curiously, private prosecution is still allowed. However, the only people that are able to afford private prosecution are extremely wealthy. And so it tends to be relegated to disputes among uh, financial companies and anyone else that has worked for them. I'm going to post an article where this um, polymath from... What what does polymath mean? Person who knows a lot, basically. Okay. So this this math whiz from China worked at a finance, a very secretive uh, finance company in the, in the UK. And when he left, he was suspected of taking a bunch of trade secrets, such as formulas for calculating uh, yields and whatever else, whatever the fuck quants do in the finance sector. So he was accused of uh, taking it and the government wasn't really privy to what happened. They didn't know, they didn't know a theft that had occurred, but the very wealthy owner of the finance company just hired his own law firm and they acted as the prosecution and they even addressed the the court in the name of the crown. So they functionally looked like prosecutions, but they were extremely well-funded and fully privatized. And I don't think that's a relatively new development, but it has, just because it's a it's a it's it's an artifact from way back when when anyone could bring a criminal prosecution in front of a court when there was no government employee that was designated as the prosecutor so that has shrunk but in its place uh it has been supplemented by this kind of second tier legal system that is generally relegated to high high dollar value finance disputes and just as a matter of course, uh, you have increasingly more and more clauses with corporations that, that prohibit filing suits in court if you have a dispute and they rely on arbitration instead. I gather no one in this call has had a, an experience with arbitration? No, I have managed to get it removed from an employment contract once, but that was just me being a stickler about it. I'd want to know your specific objections to it, but I'll I'll say that I did have a a dispute with PayPal when they shut down my account for no reason. I followed the, I think I was like one of the the handful of people within whatever time period, but I followed the, the end user legal agreement and saw that you could initiate arbitration. And I also saw that PayPal will pay the arbitration costs up to an amount and I found that this is quite common among corporations whenever they have uh, 
a very whenever they require arbitration, they'll take care of the filing fees. So I filed an arbitration request with a, a private arbitration company, and for whatever reason, PayPal never got the notice. And so until the arbitration company contacted them for a response, and at that point, PayPal quickly offered to settle because just the filing fee was going to be way more, uh, way more of a headache than anything that I could even get out of it. So it's seen, it's understandably seen as this dodgy way that companies use to cover their ass. But at least in my very limited experience, it worked as expected, not necessarily because I got the outcome I wanted, but because it it seemed to be objective and fair and not necessarily tilted in one direction or another. In my case, it was just um, a software company giving me a really restrictive employment contract that had things like no moonlighting allowed, no um, no mandatory drug test. And I needed to give them my, like my driver's license info for some reason. I don't drive as part of my job. I don't understand why. So I, I just, I just took him to task and said, no, I'm not going to accept your offer unless you strip out all this stuff. And one part was like related to if there are any disputes, uh, something, something by arbitration. And I didn't know what that meant. And I would just rather go with the legal system that I kind of know a little bit about than the one that I have absolutely no experience with. And as an added point, you always have the opportunity to go legal arbitration. Just because you sign, just because your contract doesn't mandate it, doesn't mean that you don't have that option. Yeah, the, removing the mandate only prevents them from forcing you into arbitration. You can always offer it, and if they want it, which they seem to already, they would presumably accept. I've always thought that drug testing and and uh, when it's tied to employment isn't necessarily to find drugs, but it's it's a, it's a signaling method to see if you can stay sober for a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have uh, uh, mandatory drug testing in, in our properties, but it's only um, uh, it's incident based. We, it's, it, it's not like random or systematic drug testing. It's if you get injured on the job, you, you're going to have to get a drug test. Um, and partly it's because it's a restaurant. And so you're dealing with a lot of people who are potentially on drugs and um, also uh, with knives. Has that has that happened so far? We've never actually had to follow through. Um the uh, uh, the couple of instances of uh, uh, injuries um, have they've they've always they've all been so minor as not even be worth anything. Yeah, there was only one time that I could not get the drug testing clause removed from an employment contract, and it was because uh, it was a health information systems company, and so for HIPAA reasons or something, they had to uh, allow drug testing for employees. <laughs> But, That's bullshit. Yeah, I, was <laughs> I like, think they yeah, just whatever. made up that reason. I, I I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm I'm gonna move to the Bay Area in like six months. You know, so this was back early in my career. So uh, one downside of uh, private arbitration is that it's not public, and that can be good or bad depending on what your uh, perspective is. When it's not public, then you don't have a history of uh, prior decisions or prior cases to look at to see if there is a pattern with a specific company. However, it does protect people's privacy. For example, one benefit of a a sexual harassment case that is done through private arbitration is that the victim could have their identity protected if they want. That That does become a problem when that level of secrecy and privacy is used to hide malfeasance. 
are there any arbitration companies that just publicly release their records and maybe redact, you know, no details that no, it's just always private. I've never heard of of one that, that is public because that's like one of the primary benefits is just to take care of disputes privately. And I, I, I think, I think perhaps some people don't quite realize how public disputes get when you file them in, in normal court, you see this disconnect most prominently when someone tries to seal court documents after the fact, uh, because they realize that their name pops up too much in uh, search engine net results. Uh, or like, for example, there was, uh, there was this, um, employee that had a dispute with their employer and they sued in court. And I think, I believe they eventually settled, but they realized that no one wanted to hire them anymore because when you Google their name, the first thing that pops up is the fact that they sued their employee. So they tried to see, um, and I'll post the link to this, but they tried to move the court to seal the lawsuit and the, the, the court just said, no, like courts are public unless you have a really good reason. We're not going to seal it. We're not going to be, we're not going to make it secret. Huh. I don't know if any lawyers, like if either of you have worked prosecution side, but if people ever came to you and were said they wanted to sue somebody, is that a, a common response saying, Hey, you might not want to do this. You might want to pursue some other options because you're going to look bad in public. Yeah. The the typical answer um, that I would give anybody who asked me and that I have gotten when being the person asking is you don't want to do that. <laughs> it, it's it's a pain. You're going to have to like we we had um, uh, we had we have a situation um, in the last couple of weeks where we had a former employee go around and I mean, he, phys- physically imposing guy uh, go around after being terminated um, uh, to some of our investors in, in, and in one instance, uh, inviting himself into her house um, and uh, uh, basically not physically threatening, not, not quite getting to the line where, where you could get a restraining order, but um, definitely spreading slander and uh, uh, well, and defaming us. So we, of course, one of our investors who, who, had talked to this guy said, you know, we should, we should, you should do something. You should, uh, you know, file a restraining order or send a cease and desist or whatever. It's like, I know, no, we don't want to do that. That this will fizzle itself out. But if I have, if I have to file a lawsuit, this is going to last years and it's going to cost a ton of money and it's, it's not worth it. Now, if you have a large recovery, sure, maybe it is worth it. But in this case, it's all, all we want to do is make the guy stop and, best way to do that is to just ignore him yeah never forget the streisand effect yeah and there's i guess a a risk that if it ever got into the press oh look at this big company going after this one employee that could really look bad for you as well even if you're totally in the right Exactly. Yeah. And, and he's, it's, it's gotten to the point in the last couple of days where we're, it's very good that we didn't do anything because he's just sinking himself. So anything else about private law enforcement? Okay. That wraps up our show. Thank you everyone for your fine involvement.